1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 to 12, and then we go to 18, verses 18 to 25. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Slaves, in, rele- in relevant, reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for good, doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like a sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. And instinctively, uh, don't you find yourself thinking, that can't possibly be right? Don't you find yourself asking questions? And then it seems to get worse. As you read on, it encourages slaves to submit to masters who are harsh and unjust. So what do you do when you come to a bit of the Bible that just seems to be wrong? You know, what what do you do when you hit this sort of space? I mean, for some of us, maybe it just confirms that you think uh, the Bible is a very outdated book with little application to our current situation in 21st century Australia. Or maybe what you do is you sort of put it into uh, suspended animation, you know, and move on uh, to something which is more familiar and makes a lot more sense, and you think at some stage you'll come back and work it out. Or maybe what you try and do is just uh, reinterpret it. You know, you say, well, look, I know, you know, it says slaves ought to submit to their masters, but once you get into the original Greek language and you think about the context and everything like that, what it really is saying is Christians should strive for justice and the abolition of slavery, you know. But that's a little bit of a stretch, you know, when you come to this text. So... Let's take a closer look. Let's try and work out uh, what this is saying and whether it does actually have relevance for us as we think about 21st century Australia. So come with me to chapter 2, verse 18. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Let's look at it together. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, uh, but also to those who are harsh. So here's my first question. Why doesn't the Apostle Peter, why doesn't he oppose slavery in this text? 
2019 marked the 400th anniversary of the first recorded transportation of an African slave to North America. Just two years ago, there were international Black Lives Matter protests right across the world, triggered by the death of George Floyd in the United States of America. And when we come to 1 Peter 2, you see the word slavery, and it conjures up in your mind uh, images of Africans uh, kidnapped, transported by a ship in humane conditions, very high mortality rate, and they live in servitude and abuse in a foreign country. And we know that human trafficking is wrong, right? There's no question about that, isn't it? So why doesn't the Apostle Peter seem to get this? A couple of points. Firstly, slavery in the first century Roman Empire, it was of a different character to that sort of African image. That is, slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't racial, it wasn't permanent, and it was normal. So it's estimated that across the Roman Empire, 50% of the people who were in that empire were slaves. The estimation is that in the city of Rome, 80% of uh, the occupants of Rome were in slavery. Uh, Often people would become slaves because they got into debt and it was just the normal economic way of resolving a debt issue. Uh, In the Roman Empire, slaves could hold extraordinarily significant positions. Uh, They could be uh, highly educated, uh, managerial roles, teaching roles in households, professionals. Uh, Slaves could be paid, so they were more like hired servants. And in fact, when you look at the word in verse 18 of uh, 1 Peter 2, it's the word for uh, household servant rather than slave. Whereas if you go back to verse 16, where it talks about being slaves of God, that is actually the more base word for slave, two different words being used. And there's that sort of understanding here. Uh, Slaves could be paid, and in due course, they could effectively buy their way out of servitude. That was one of the normal things that happened. However, having said that, there was obviously abuse, uh, because that's built into this passage, isn't it? an understanding that you could be in a slave situation and abused. And also, the very nature of being owned by another is contrary to human dignity and the way in which God has created us. So I don't want to sugarcoat it, but I do want to say it's a different sort of category of thinking. So then you ask the further question, which is, well, why doesn't Peter refer to the wider teaching in the Scriptures against slavery? Uh, So you go to a place like Galatians 2 or Colossians 3, and we're told there that slaves have the same status in the church, in God's family, before God, as non-slaves. You go to Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4, and their masters are told to treat their slaves with respect. Uh, You go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and Paul condemns slave trading. Or in 1 Corinthians 7 from verse 20, Uh, We're told that slaves are encouraged to acquire their freedom if they can. So did did Peter just sort of miss out on the apostolic memo that said, we are against slavery, right? Did he just sort of, you know, have a a sleepy moment and not realise? I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on here. So why don't we step back 
and just take a closer look at both the context and this section of Scripture. Let's see if we can work it out together. So I want to ask the question, how does this section on slavery, how does it fit into the flow of the argument in this letter so far? So back in chapter 1, you remember a few weeks ago, it was all about the wonderful salvation that is ours in Christ. Now we've been brought into God's family by his grace and his mercy. You get to chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, just immediately before this section, and we're told that our vocation is to be God's ambassadors in his world, right? That's the instruction. Then from chapter 2, verse 11 and following, we're to turn our minds to how we engage in a world that doesn't believe in Jesus. Uh, Verses 11 and 12, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. How do we commend Jesus to others so that when Jesus returns, they might have put their trust in him? That's what's on view. How do we do that? Well, then we get three case studies. Last week we looked at uh, how Christians respond to non-Christian rulers or government authorities. Today we turn to look at the issue of how uh, Christian slaves treat their non-Christian masters in that way. And then next week we'll come to husbands and wives and look at that. Three case studies illustrating that same point. So let's turn to it. How do Christian slaves commend Jesus to their non-Christian masters? And let's uh, dig into it. What we discover, first of all, verse 18, is that slaves are told to have reverent fear of God. Verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Now, this is the the controlling idea, really for all of life, not just this situation. Believers are to fear God. and, And what that means is what God wants for our life is meant to dominate our thinking and our hearts about our life and our purpose. It's exactly the same sort of idea that came up back in verse 16. Live as free people but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Live as God's slaves. You see, do you understand that, that if you're a follower of Jesus, then at the core level, your first priority is to, is to obey God. That is, you belong to God. That's the point of being saved. Peter then goes on and talks about submitting even when we're treated unjustly. Verse 18, so submit not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And then it goes on verse 19. It's commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you're conscious of God. Now, does, does our suffering somehow please God? And the answer is no, not at all. But what we're being told is if you do good and suffer for doing good, then it is commendable in the sight of God. That's the point that's being made. And then in verses 21 to 25, we're reminded that that's exactly what happened to Jesus, exactly the point. Christianity is so unusual among the world religions at at this point because most religions 
They celebrate what their founders taught or did or their life example. But Christians, we celebrate that our founder suffered and died. Right? That's at the heart of what we believe. Verse 21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Uh, verse 21, Christ suffered for our sins. Uh, his suffering and his death is the basis upon which we have relationship with God. Now, we can't um, suffer for our own sins. We can't suffer for anyone else's sins at all. But we are being told to follow Christ's example at this point. That is, we willingly suffer for the benefit of other people. And in this case, Christian slaves are willing to suffer if it commends the gospel to their unbelieving masters. That's the flow of the argument. You see that, that quote in verse 22 from Isaiah 53. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Uh, back in 1 Peter 2 verse 11, uh, we're told to abstain from sinful desires. But don't you find it really hard not to sin when you're being sinned against? I mean, most of us, I think, find that hard. When people mistreat you or disrespect you or try and bring you down or damage your reputation or harm you in some way, it's hard not to want payback. Uh, when that happens to you, don't, don't you find the temptation in your heart filling with a desire for revenge when you're mistreated? But I want you to notice again the example of Jesus that immediately follows. Verse 23. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. See, even when you're being treated unjustly, the main issue is not the sin of the person sinning against you. The main issue is not that you be treated fairly. The main issue is not your rights that are being trampled on. The main issue for us as followers of Jesus is what will contribute to the salvation of the person who is abusing me? Or those who are watching as I deal with that abuse, wanting to see how I react. Now, can I say to our 21st century minds, this is a weird and strange way to think and react to mistreatment. It is. But I do want to say it actually is God's way for his followers. Right. What I've done is... I've outlined some of the principles that I think undergird this passage and I realise that there are now stacks of questions that you have in your mind. So what I want to do with the time I have left is to just try and play this out and see how it works in our lives in 21st century Australia. Okay, what does it mean for us? I want to say, first of all, if you count yourself a Christian, then you are a slave, okay? Now... You see the title of the talk, 
And in fact, Cam Maxwell came back to me and said, I just want to make sure this was the title you intended. Uh, does, the, does the Bible commend slavery? Question mark, okay. Now, the answer is yes. Yes, it does. You can have no doubt about that when you go back to chapter 2, verse 16. Live as God's slaves. There's no question about that. Followers of Jesus live owned by God to serve his purposes in this world. That is how we identify and that's the way Christians are to see themselves. In the 18th century, Johann Dober and David Nietzschmann, two uh, German missionaries, they were sent out by the Moravian Christian brethren uh, to the West Indies and their task was to evangelise slaves who were working the plantations there. Uh, African slaves who'd been transported across. So when Dober and Nietzschean, when they got there, they worked as hard as they possibly could to build connections with those slaves, but there's just no access to them. They worked in the, the fields all day, slept. I, there was just no connection, no way they could do it. So what these two missionaries did was they sold themselves into slavery so they could work alongside these African slaves and share the gospel with them. They were slaves of Christ and therefore willing to be slaves of men to serve Christ. Uh, That is exactly the way we're to think about our lives in this world. The second thing I want to say is the biggest issue is not justice for us, but that we see people saved. In our culture, uh, where slavery has been abolished, what does that mean? How do we apply this into this way of thinking? So let me take the issue of the current debate that's going on in the press to do with freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Okay? Now, I think freedom of speech and freedom of religion are good things, uh, no question about it. I just want you to think about the motivations we might have as followers of Jesus in promoting those two things. So it's easy to jump on board with either of those things and say, these are our rights in a democratic Australia. We must fight for the rights of Christians to be able to speak and fight for the rights of Christians to be able to exercise religion in the way they choose. Now, I think that's actually, there's a truth in that, but it's not the core truth. The core truth is we want freedom of religion and freedom of speech in order to be able to commend the gospel to others. It's not about our rights and our freedoms. That, that's, it's never about us. It's always about God and serving his purposes in the world. And we want to be able to speak the gospel so it makes sense to actually do it. Now, I think there's, there's both in there, but I want to say the primary concern is actually for the salvation of many and the commending of the gospel. Let me uh, flip it again into a different situation. Let me try and apply the principle into a workplace uh, setting. So say you're in a situation where uh, you work on an hourly paid rate in uh, a work context and your boss is clipping your wages uh, by signing you off later and earlier than when you arrive and when you depart, all right? So you're being effectively cheated 
out of, uh, out of money. So what, what do you do uh, in that situation? You'd have various legal options. Uh, do you pursue them or does somehow submission to your boss in a 21st century Australian context mean you shouldn't do that? Let me say the first thing you need to bear in mind is that you are a slave of God in the first instance. So you always operate with integrity in your workplace setting. I remember um, uh, there was one time when Sue was working in a legal office and she heard one of the secretaries on the switchboard uh, saying to somebody, no, no, I'm sorry, Mrs Harrington isn't in the office right now. Can I take a message? (laughs) So that Sue could actually hear the message. So she was obviously there. And Sue spent time just explaining to the, uh, the secretary that if she was in the office, then she should never say that, right? She should always say she was unavailable to take a message, not that she was out. But she understood why the person was doing it. Yet we always operate with integrity in that workplace setting. But let me come back to the, uh, the situation where you're being ripped off. How do you respond? Your first concern will be to commend the gospel to the boss who is ripping you off. And if that meant suffering financial loss to achieve it, that's fine. Because that's the first priority. Now, having laid out that principle, let me talk about what I think you should do in this situation. And bearing in mind we're in a 21st century context where there are rules and regulations around this sort of behaviour. In most situations, I don't think it helps the other person to let them sin against you. I don't think that's actually a helpful thing to do. So in that workplace setting, I think what you would first of all do is speak to your boss about the situation. If the boss doesn't listen, you speak to their boss about the situation, if that's an option open to you. And then thirdly, you would think about the sort of legal options that you might pursue or choose not to pursue, depending on the circumstances. However, let me say, uh, having outlined a skeleton way of approaching it, the the key thing is that your manner uh, in the whole process is full of grace and integrity and gentleness. Because at the base level, the most important thing is not that you get paid, but that your boss get saved. Uh, The most important thing is not your boss gets hauled over the coals by an industrial tribunal, but that the person ripping you off is drawn closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heartbeat of your approach. I was uh, having a conversation with someone in one of another Trinity Church who works in a government office. Uh, they were saying they were having an incredibly difficult time with some of the people they were responsible for in the office uh, who were answerable to her. And uh, it, it was just very, very difficult. And they said that their boss had said this to them, you are treating the people in your department better than they deserve. I suppose that's because you go to church. 
Isn't there a lovely comment for someone to be able to make and observe? A great commendation. Third thing I want to say is this. We are to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. And verse 23, it says, When Jesus was heading to the cross, he suffered, uh, he was mistreated and abused and insulted, and yet, verse 23, he did not retaliate, he made no threats. Now, just remind ourselves here what's going on. Here he is, God amongst us, royalty. He made the universe, he gives everyone life and breath and everything. He's, he's treated incredibly shabbily, and he could have obliterated everyone around him who was mistreating him with just a word, but he didn't. He went to a cross and died for the sins of the people who were abusing him. He died for our sins. And then in verse 23, we're told, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Can I say injustice is built into the fabric of our present age. You will suffer injustice and mistreatment. And let me say, if this world was all there there is, what you want to do is just to avoid mistreatment and injustice and suffering as much as you possibly can. But there is a day, friends, when ultimate justice will be done, the day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And we, we entrust ourselves into the hands of him who will judge justly on that day. John Stuart Mill, uh, he was a 19th century philosopher, not a, not a Christian person as far as I can tell. He was the founding father of modern Western uh, liberal thinking. He wrote uh, a book called On Liberty. This is, this is what he said in his book. Over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. Over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. Now, I reckon that would make a great mantra for 21st century Australia. Isn't that the philosophy that we all operate under as a nation? Free to think what I want, live the way I choose, to operate without interference from anyone, my body, my rights. Don't you hear those sort of beats echoing throughout our culture? And then we come to this section of the Bible that instructs slaves to submit to masters, even when they're enduring unjust suffering and punishment at their hands. Yeah, the individual is sovereign. No, no, no. God is. That's the point. Now, let me be absolutely clear. Christians, of course, have and they will choose to fight to abolish slavery. At this point, we line up with the Bible, we line up with a long uh, string of believers who've opposed slavery throughout the ages, Wilberforce in the 19th century. No question about that. 
But can I say, we know that there is a bigger issue at stake. And it's the salvation of people. It, it controlled Jesus as he went to the cross. It controlled Jesus as he thought about what was going on when he was being brutalised and suffering the ultimate injustice and mockery. He submitted to it for the salvation of many. Friends, if you call yourself a Christian, uh, then you will see yourself, your understanding of self will be that you are God's slave. That's just the way you'll, you'll see it. And so, of course, you will suffer loss uh, for the good of others and their salvation every time. Let me pray first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, this passage, even though it uh, strikes at the very heart of the way our culture functions, Father, we know that it really illustrates the heartbeat of your concern for this world. Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus didn't stand on his rights or his entitlements, but actually gave them up for our sake. And Father, we pray that for those of us who are gripped by an understanding of the truth of the gospel, it will take hold of our minds and hearts and that you'll give us the ability to put this into practice in the situations we find ourselves in, in relationship, in a complex world, in a complex society, in a world that's um, in many ways lost touch with these foundational gospel principles. We pray that we will shine of these, extol them, and uh, promote you and your glory and honour in our world and in our relationships. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.